It's August 31st, 1955. Rays of early morning sunlight wash over the banks of the Tallahatchie River as it peacefully winds its way through the Mississippi countryside. On a stretch east of the town of Glendora, a 17-year-old boy called Robert Hodges picks his way along the side of the river. He's a fisherman, out early before most of the Tallahatchie County wakes up. He has his routine, setting a series of lines along the shore, then doubling back to see what's biting. It's a little after 6 a.m. when something catches Hodge's eye in the water. He squints against the sun's glare. The shadowy shape under the water seems to be motionless. Expecting to find a mass of tree branches, he edges closer to the embankment to get a better look. Eventually, the ripples calm and the water clears for a moment, and he realizes, to his horror, that the dark mass is in fact a pair of human legs, bare feet occasionally bobbing up into the air. He runs the mile back home to tell his father. They soon return in a pair of boats, with a few other men to help, including a deputy sheriff. Despite the strong current, the body hasn't moved an inch. They assume it must be wedged or stuck on something. A rope is looped around the protruding legs and the body is dragged back to shore. They struggle to bring it up out of the water. It's heavier than they expected. They soon find out why. The body has been weighed down. Attached to the victim's neck by a spool of barbed wire is a large metal fan, like the ones used in cotton mills. There's a collective gasp of shock and horror as the group study the recovered body. A black male, perhaps a teenager or a young man, it's hard to say. The poor victim's face, swollen, battered, and disfigured, is clearly the result of some terrible, unspeakable violence. The gunshot wound above the right ear leaves no doubt as to cause of death. As for the victim's identity, it could almost be anyone. The boy has been left unrecognizable. Although, the deputy sheriff likely has an idea who it might be. He knows that a 14-year-old kid was reported missing just three days ago. Could this be him? If so, who could have committed such horrific abuse and why? The answers to these questions will haunt Mississippi and the nation for decades to come. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Emmett Till, the young boy whose murder became the latest in a long line of racial hate crimes plaguing the United States. It's about a tragedy that shocked a Southern state steeped in segregation. It's a story that would inspire the civil rights movement and a deathbed confession given years later that could expose a cover-up of what really happened on the night Emmett was killed. I'm Estefania Hayden, and this is Deathbed Confessions. 
now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The brutal murder of Emmett Till, the subsequent police investigation, partisan press coverage, and collective outrage would mark it as one of the nation's most notorious crimes. But decades after the tragedy, a surprising deathbed confession arises. One which might finally answer questions that have plagued America for over 50 years. Who really killed Emmett Till? And how many people were involved? Many fear it is now too late for justice to be served. But the answers might yet bring closure to a grieving family. This is the story of a few brave voices that risked their lives for justice and the heartbreaking battle of a grieving mother to keep the memory of her beloved son alive. Emmett is born into a troubled world on July 25, 1941. World War II is raging. Allied forces are determined to push back the advance of Hitler's army and free Europe from his oppressive grasp. But back at home, many U.S. citizens face a struggle against a different type of oppression. Emmett's mother, Mamie Till, is from the small town of Webb in the state of Mississippi, but has spent most of her life in Chicago. She moved there with her family in 1923 to escape the rural poverty, racial inequality, and violence that's still all too common in the South. Mamie and her husband, Louis, don't have the happiest of marriages, and she divorces him the year after Emmett is born. Louis goes on to enlist in the army, but is court-martialed and executed in 1945, leaving Mamie to raise Emmett alone. In 1946, when he's five years old, Emmett contracts polio. Although he recovers, it leaves him with a stutter that will stay with him for life. Perhaps to disguise this speech difficulty, Emmett often resorts to humor. Those who know him describe him as a funny kid, always making jokes. As a young teen, he attends McCosh Grammar School, which, like all schools at the time, is segregated. But that, and a whole lot more, is about to change. In May 1954, 
a landmark case reaches the U.S. Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education. The suit is brought forward by a group of parents in Topeka, Kansas, and calls for an end to racial segregation in schools. Classrooms, like many public facilities and amenities, especially in the South, have been racially divided for decades, almost going back to the Civil War. This is largely thanks to legislation known as the Jim Crow laws. In the case of Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court agrees with the parents and rules that segregation in classrooms is unconstitutional. It's a watershed moment for many, paving the way for further integration rulings and is widely celebrated across the nation. But not everywhere. In many Southern states, including Mississippi, the verdict is received with scorn and outrage. In fact, resistance to integration hardens. White supremacist segregationist groups like the Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan work to suppress Black Americans' rights to opportunities by any means necessary, including resorting to violence. The Southern press warn of imminent disaster following the Supreme Court's decision, running headlines like bloodstains on white marble steps. This is the racist, dangerous, and divided world that Emmett Till is about to step into. In August 1955, Emmett's great-uncle, Reverend Mose Wright, a Mississippi churchman, visits Chicago for a family funeral. While he's in town, he tells 14-year-old Emmett all about rural life back on the Mississippi Delta. Hearing stories about this beautiful, strange, faraway land captures Emmett's imagination. He is desperate to visit his mother's home state. However, Mamie worries that her son doesn't fully understand just how different life is down there for anyone who isn't white. It's a far cry from the south side of Chicago, where their middle-class neighborhood is filled with thriving Black-owned businesses. But Emmett won't be denied and keeps pestering her until finally she relents. It's agreed that he and his cousin, Wheeler Parker, will join their great uncle on the journey south. Emmett is the apple of his mother's eye. She dotes on him, remarking to friends how his cheeky smile is one of her favorite things about him, how it lights up any room he walks into. Unsurprisingly, Mamie doesn't want even a hair on his head harmed. In preparation for the trip, Mamie drills Emmett on the social rules of Mississippi. She explains to him the importance of not drawing attention to himself, of being respectful, saying yes sir and no ma'am. And she warns him that he should never look a white woman directly in the eye. The day Mamie sees her beloved son off is one that will stick in her memory forever. They're late leaving the house and almost miss the train. As they hustle into the station, there's a shrill whistle telling them it's about to depart. Emmett bounds up the steps and Mamie calls out to him. You didn't kiss me goodbye, she says. How do I know I'm gonna see you again? He scolds her and kisses her cheek. Emmett takes off his watch, telling her he won't need it in Mississippi. The only accessory he wears is a ring that once belonged to his father. The engraving on it reads, LT, his dad's initials. With that, 
Emmett climbs aboard, grinning from ear to ear at the prospect of the adventure that lies ahead. Reverend Wright lives with his wife and children in the town of Money, Mississippi. It's a small farming community with only a few hundred residents. When Emmett arrives on August 21st, it's the height of the cotton picking season. While some of his older cousins work in the fields, Emmett spends his days playing with the other younger kids. On the evening of August 24th, Emmett drives into Money with a small group of family and friends. They pull up outside Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. The store is owned by 24-year-old Roy Bryant and his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn. Roy Bryant, along with his brothers and half-brothers, the Milams, are a large clan. Like many in these parts, they are proud segregationists, but like many, they also rely on the population of Black agricultural workers for their income, running a string of corner shops and country stores catering to locals. In the days and years to come, there will be several conflicting accounts of what exactly happens next. The following is the sequence of events as witnessed by Emmett's companions. After spending a few minutes hanging outside in front of the store, where a group of locals are joking, talking, and playing checkers, Emmett's cousin Wheeler goes inside. He is served by Carolyn Bryant, who is minding the shop alone. As he exits the store, Emmett walks in. He picks up a pack of gum, and when Carolyn reaches out her hand, Emmett places the coins in her palm. Not being from these parts, he's not to know that this level of physical interaction is deeply frowned upon. A local would have placed the money on the counter rather than touch her hand. One of Emmett's cousins, 18-year-old Ruthie May, watches this encounter through the window and sees Carolyn jerk her hand back as Emmett touches it. Another of his cousins, 12-year-old Simeon Wright, quickly goes in to make sure Emmett doesn't say or do anything else to get himself in trouble. The two boys leave without speaking to Carolyn. Moments later, she follows them out and heads quickly to her parked car by the side of the store. What Emmett does next shocks his cousins to their core. It's unthinkable by local standards, like a proverbial lightning bolt striking out of the blue. Whether acting up or covering his nerves, it seems the fun-loving teenager lets out a loud wolf whistle in the direction of Carolyn Bryant as she hustles towards her car. To say the piercing sound startles the group would be an understatement. It doesn't take long for young Emmett to read the worried expressions on his cousin's faces. When one of the others suggests that Carolyn is heading to her car to fetch a gun, well, it's all the incentive the group needs to get out of there. They pile back into their car and speed off. As they tear out of town, one of the cousins spots a car following behind. Is someone giving chase? The kids take no chances. They pull over, dive out, and run into the cotton fields. A few of them collide and fall in a tangle of limbs. Looking back, they discover that instead of coming after them, the car drives on by. They breathe a collective sigh of relief. Little do they know, tragedy is only days away. On August 27th, 
two days after the incident at the store, Carolyn's husband, Roy Bryant, returns from a business trip. It's not exactly clear how he finds out or who tells him precisely what occurred. What we do know is that the former army paratrooper turned shop owner flies into a fury. The thought of a black teenager publicly disrespecting his wife is too much for him to handle. He and his brother-in-law, John William Milam, known as JW, head out in their pickup truck. The two men head 20 miles south of Money to JW's store. Once there, they share drinks with a group of friends late into the evening. Several neighbors overhear them talking about paying the kid a visit and how they need to teach the young visitor from Chicago a lesson. It's a little after 2 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, August 28th. Out on Dark Fear Road, everyone in the right house is fast asleep, including 14-year-old Emmett Till. Suddenly, the stillness of the night is broken by the rumble of a truck engine. The sound draws closer until a shape emerges from the dark. A pickup with its headlights off pulls to a slow stop out front. Inside, the old church minister, Moe's Wright, is jerked from his sleep by a bang at the door. Who is it? He calls out sleepily. This is Mr. Bryant, replies the voice from outside. I want to talk with you and the boy. Wright opens the door, shielding his eyes from the flashlight his visitor holds. Confused though he is, he recognizes Bryant and his brother-in-law. He also notes the 45 automatic revolver in JW's hand. Bryant tells him that he wants the boy that spoke to his wife. It's a moment Moe's Wright has been dreading since he heard of the incident himself a few days back. But with the loaded gun pointed right at him, he has little choice but to comply. Roy Bryant steps inside, followed by JW. Entering a back room, they shine the torch on the sleeping Simeon Wright and Emmett Till. Bryant reaches down and shakes Emmett awake. He orders him out of bed. The teenager is disoriented, mind still muddled by sleep. The two white men fire questions at him. In amongst the confusion and trying to get dressed, Emmett forgets everything his mother told him. It seems he answers back and fails to address the men as sir. An oversight which only infuriates them further. Bryant and JW calmly explain they're going to take Emmett down the road and work him over, then cut him loose. His great aunt begs them to leave him be. She even offers them money if they'll just go home and let her send Emmett back to Chicago. But JW isn't having any of it. Still holding the gun, he turns to face Moe's right. How old are you? JW asks the worried looking preacher. Wright replies that he is 64. Well, if you know any of us here tonight, JW warns him, then you'll never live to be 65. There's no subtlety about the threat. Tell anyone what happened tonight, and he's a dead man. Bryant and JW march Emmett right out the front door and over to their waiting truck. Despite their warning, 
Wright peers out into the darkness, straining his eyes to see who the other kidnappers are. He can hear more voices coming from the vehicle. Someone asks if this is the boy. Wright cannot be 100% sure, but fancies it's a woman who answers with a single word. Yes. Then, they drive off without even turning their headlights on. The sound of the engine fades away, leaving Wright staring into the moonless night, wondering if he'll ever see his great-nephew again. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Once the men have left, Moe's right stands on the porch for 20 minutes, debating what to do. Eventually... He jumps in his car and spends the next few hours driving around desperately searching, hoping that the men were true to their word and have released Emmett somewhere close by. At around 8 a.m., he returns home empty-handed to a house full of disbelief and dread. He's still too afraid to call the police, worried about the repercussions, but one of Emmett's cousins takes the brave decision to do it anyway. It's not the only difficult phone call that's made that night. Sometime early in the morning, back in Chicago, Mamie Till receives the worst news of her life. Around two o'clock that afternoon, after taking interviews with the Wright family, the sheriff goes to speak to Roy Bryant at his store. It's Sunday, so the shop is closed, but he finds Bryant asleep in his room at the back. Brian openly admits that he took the boy. He says that he brought him back here for his wife to identify, but that Carolyn wasn't able to say for sure. So they turned him loose. After that, he says, he went to see some friends and play cards for the rest of the night. Both Bryant and J.W. are soon arrested on suspicion of kidnapping Emmett and taken to a local jail. The significance of this can't be ignored. Word soon gets around but the pair remain steadfast. They are adamant that Emmett was alive and well when they let him go. So why then, his family ask, has Emmett not found his way home? On August 31st, police pull a body from the Tallahatchie River. Aware that a young boy disappeared just three days ago, they suspect the body may belong to Emmett Till. 
police ask Moe's Wright to come to the riverbank. Wright's face is a solemn mask of sorrow as he looks down at the gruesome sight. He studies the disfigured face as best he can manage, looking for signs of the boy he knew. But it has been so badly beaten, it's impossible to say. What he does recognize, though, is the silver ring glinting on one of the fingers. A deputy takes it off and hands it to Wright, who studies the engraving. The letters LT are clearly etched into it, confirming what he already knew in his heart that this is the body of his nephew. Shortly after Wright's identification, an undertaker arrives to take Emmett to a nearby funeral home. Apparently, the sheriff has insisted on a speedy burial. The family are told to go to a cemetery and money. When they get there, they find a hole has already been dug and a sealed pine box containing Emmett sits on the ground beside it. But why is the sheriff in such a hurry? Is it purely to lay a decomposing body to rest as soon as possible? Or does he have other concerns? Given the sky-high social tensions, is he worried that this barbaric murder could cause more trouble than usual? Whatever his reasons, Emmett's mother has other ideas. Having learned of her son's death, and in spite of her terrible grief, Mamie leaps into action she won't have her son or the truth buried without due process. With the help of officials in Chicago, proceedings are halted. Mamie makes arrangements for Emmett to be returned to her in Chicago and sets in motion a chain of events that will change the course of history. It's September 2nd, 1955 when Mamie Till receives notice that they're finally ready for her to view her son's body. Through a torrent of tears and a breaking heart, Mamie witnesses firsthand what has been done to her son. In a show of incredible strength that transcends her grief, she dismisses the suggestion of a closed casket funeral. She won't even allow the funeral director to carry out any work on Emmett's body before the service. Let the people see what I've seen, she tells him. I want the world to see this. As news of Emmett's murder gradually gets around Chicago, Mamie meets with a photographer from Jet Magazine. She allows him to take pictures, as only pictures can accurately convey the unspeakable violence done to her beloved son. The story quickly makes headlines all over the country, with countless newspapers denouncing the murder, including those in the South. Thousands of people flock to Emmett's wake at the funeral parlor. No doubt his injuries look all the more shocking when compared to childhood pictures of Emmett that Mamie tapes to the casket lid. They show happier times, like him smiling at Christmas. It's September 3rd, 1955, in Chicago. Emmett's funeral is being held at the Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ, and the crowds have continued to swell. Today, there are around 1,800 mourners inside the church, and another 3,000 packed on the pavement outside. 
Mamie is escorted through the crowds by police officers. Following the service, an endless flow of mourners file past the open casket. Emmett's body is on full display, albeit now covered with a pane of glass. Seeing him has such a profound effect that many individuals have to be helped out of the building afterwards. In fact, the queues are so long that Mamie has to address the crowd herself. Again, showing incredible strength, she announces that her son's burial will be postponed until September 6th to give everyone the opportunity to pay their respects and witness the evidence of a historic crime for themselves. Papers will later report that anywhere between 10 and 50,000 people would eventually come out and view Emmett Till's body. News spreads across the nation like wildfire. It won't be long until the whole world is watching. Meanwhile, in Mississippi, the two men accused of kidnapping Emmett Till languish in jail while a police investigation proceeds. But while the public rally and condemn the alleged killers, the local sheriff doesn't seem as convinced of his prisoner's guilt. Incredibly, he comes out and publicly declares that he doesn't truly believe the body pulled from the river is that of Emmett Till. He maintains that identification was impossible. He goes further, saying the boy may still be alive and well and that the whole situation might have been fabricated by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP for short, the well-known civil rights organization. His provocative comments only serve to divide opinion and stir up accusations of conspiracy on both sides. The division quickly becomes entrenched as partisan press and local politicians weigh in. On the one hand, Bryant and J.W. are publicly condemned and even receive death threats. On the other hand, collection tins start popping up around Mississippi to aid the defense of the accused men. Battle lines have been drawn. On September 7th, the day after Emmett's coffin is lowered into the ground, a grand jury votes to indict Bryant and J.W. for the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till. Either charge could result in the death penalty. One unresolved question is that of accomplices. Bryant and J.W. have admitted to kidnapping Emmett. But did they act alone? Who, for example, was the female voice Mose Wright heard identifying Emmett in the truck that night? Will their Confederates also be tracked down? It'll take an incredible act of bravery in front of a packed courtroom and in the glaring media spotlight to attempt to answer these questions. On Friday, September 9th, the presiding judge announces the jury pool from which the dozen names will come. In Mississippi at the time, women are not permitted to be jurors. And despite changes in the law, there are still no black men registered to vote in the county. Those who are eligible often face threats of violence at the ballot box. All this means that Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam will stand trial in front of an all-white, all-male jury made of their social peers. Can Mamie really expect justice for her boy in these circumstances? The eyes of the nation are on Mississippi to find out. It's Monday, September 19th, 1955, in Sumner, Mississippi. 
a town about 30 miles north of Money. Today, the impressive-looking two-story courthouse which dominates the town square is encircled by excited crowds. People slowly file inside for what many think might be a historic, era-defining trial. They're not wrong. The court can only hold about 300, but there are even more packed inside, standing where they can. Looking out over the courtroom, it's impossible not to register the segregated seating for those in attendance. The state, acting on behalf of the murdered child, has decided to drop the kidnapping charge and focus on trying the accused men for murder. This gives prosecutors two bites of the cherry. Fail to convict on one, and they have the option of a fresh indictment for the other. The state opens the trial with its star witness, Reverend Mose Wright. The first dramatic moment comes when Wright is asked to identify the men who came to his home. Defying Roy Bryant's sinister warning, the threat that he wouldn't live another year if he ever spoke about what the men did, Reverend Wright fixes his eyes onto the two defendants. He stands upright, dressed smartly in his crisp white shirt and pencil-thin tie. There he is, Wright says, pointing first at J.W. and then at Bryant. The two men stare back silently at him, no doubt appalled. Although Bryant and J.W. have already admitted to their involvement, for a black man to stand in a Mississippi courtroom and accuse two white men of committing a murder in full public view, it's practically unheard of. In the stunned silence of the courtroom, the only sound is from journalists scribbling notes. You could cut the tension with a knife. Over the course of the day, prosecutors take the jury through Emmett's kidnapping through to the discovery of the body. But right from the off, Bryant and J.W.'s lawyers take issue with the victim being referred to as Emmett Till. They claim that no such formal identification was possible because of the condition of the body. Over the coming days, as the trial progresses, it's a line of defense they'll return to time and again. The next brave soul to take the stand is 18-year-old sharecropper Willie Reed. Also fearing the repercussions of speaking out, he has been in hiding prior to testifying. Reed was located by civil rights activists who were conducting their own investigation, unearthing various witnesses that apparently the local police and lawyers had overlooked. The young man is racked with nerves and his voice is reduced to a whisper. But nonetheless, he testifies. He says he was near his home in Drew, Mississippi, 30 or so miles northwest of Money, when he saw Emmett with Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam in a truck on the night in question. They were driving to a farm run by J.W.'s brother, Leslie Milam. He also testifies that the accused were not alone. They were accompanied by four others, two white men and two black employees. He names the black men as Levy Collins and Henry Lee Loggins. Reed then tells the court how he saw the same truck hours later parked outside a secluded barn, Leslie Milam's barn, 
and it doesn't end there. Journalists, jurors, and spectators all hear Willie Reed recall how he heard screaming coming from inside the barn. Then, how the screaming eventually stopped. Finally, Reed claims J.W. Milam, along with three other white men, came out of the barn and confronted him, demanding to know if he had heard anything. Reed also noted the 45 automatic in J.W.'s hand. Understandably, fearing for his life, he went home and remained silent. Until now. If Willie Reed is to be believed, the number of individuals implicated in Emmett's death has grown significantly. It potentially includes J.W.'s four workers and his own brother, Leslie Milam. This witness testimony makes for uncomfortable listening on both sides of the segregated courtroom. Surely, his statement is the final nail in the defendant's coffin. When the defense presents their case, they lean heavily on two arguments. Firstly, on the night of the alleged kidnapping, with no lights on in the right house other than the flashlight carried by one of the men, how can Moe's right be sure exactly who he saw that night? Secondly, they raise the same argument as the sheriff. Can anyone really be certain that the body is in fact Emmett Till's? The same sheriff now testifies that the body they recovered might have been in the river for 10 days or more, too long to be Emmett Till. The final turn is that of their star witness, the woman who lies at the center of the storm, now dubbed by the press as the wolf whistle murder, Carolyn Bryant. Carolyn makes some surprising claims in support of her husband's case. It's a far cry from the version of events that Emmett's cousins and friends stand by. According to her, Emmett made lewd advances towards her while in the store. She says he had grabbed her hand and asked if she wanted to go on a date. She also now claims that he chased her and grabbed her by the waist. She recalls how terrified she was. Now she had rushed for her gun in self-defense. It paints a picture bordering on assault. Though how that could justify kidnapping, let alone the murder her husband is accused of, is anyone's guess. Still, it makes an impression on the jury. After five days, the defense makes its closing statement. The all-male, all-white jury is told that if they vote to convict, their forefathers will turn over in their graves. They don't shy away from invoking racial divisions, saying, every last Anglo-Saxon one of you has the courage to free these men. Just 67 minutes later, the jury files back in to deliver their verdict. Not guilty. They judge that the state has failed to prove the identity of the body as Emmett Till's. Case closed. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. 
They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. At once, cameras begin to click away, snapping pictures of a relieved Bryant and JW. The two men stay seated as some spectators rush forward to shake their hands and pat them on the backs. Afterwards, one juror tells a reporter that they would have announced the verdict sooner. But concerned how it'd look, they stopped for a soda pop break first to stretch it out a bit. Perhaps fortunately, Mamie Till isn't in court to hear this gross miscarriage of justice for herself. She left Sumner soon after the jury was sent to deliberate, correctly predicting it was only headed one way. If there's ever to be any justice for Emmett, it won't be found here. After the trial of Emmett Till, the witnesses who courageously took the stand rightly fear for their lives. Reverend Mose Wright leaves his home in Mississippi and heads for Chicago. He'll never return, and he's not alone. As mobs search the Delta for those witnesses who spoke out, 18-year-old Willie Reed is smuggled out of the state. He also ends up in Chicago living under a different name. But he soon suffers a nervous breakdown and is admitted to a hospital. The grand jury meets again on November 9th, but somehow decides not to indict either man on the kidnapping charges. It's another bitter blow for Mamie and those around her. Over the weeks and months that follow, hundreds of thousands attend rallies all across America in protest of the verdict. Amongst them is a 42-year-old Alabama woman named Rosa Parks. Hers is a name that will go down in history when, in December 1955, She refuses to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus for a white man. Asked about this years later, she will say that as she sat there, she thought of Emmett Till and couldn't go back. The stirrings of a national civil rights movement have begun, but what happens next will provoke a revolution. In January 1956, Look Magazine publishes an exclusive interview with the acquitted men, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. It's titled, The Shocking Story of Approved Killing in Mississippi. 
the editors note it's the first time the truth has been heard. Protected by the double jeopardy law from being tried a second time for the same crime, Bryant and JW are now free to openly confess. Incredibly, they go on record admitting that they are in fact guilty of torturing and murdering 14-year-old Emmett Till. Their version of events differs from the witnesses in court. Rather than Leslie Milam's barn in Drew, Mississippi, they say they took Emmett to a tool shed at JW's own home in Glendora. They say it was just the two of them present that they beat the young boy with their pistols before taking him to a riverbank where they shot him and finally threw his body in the river. Throughout the interview, J.W. paints a picture of a disrespectful Northerner who needed to be made an example of. Clearly, he feels justified in his actions. The other thing they make clear is that the two men acted alone, possibly shielding their co-conspirators. In any case, instead of receiving jail time, the pair are paid $4,000 for their story. But while the two men may feel like they're untouchable, the court of public opinion has yet to have their say. Almost immediately, Americans everywhere erupt in fury. Public outcry is so powerful that it's eventually credited with helping push the Civil Rights Act of 1957 through Congress. As for the two men who have just admitted to killing a child, it's unsurprising that even their friends and neighbors abandon them. The Bryant store is boycotted and forced to close, and both men soon flee Mississippi. They will eventually fade from the public eye, dying impoverished and marked as social outcasts. The memory of Emmett Till, on the other hand, lives on. His story continues to be told as part of the growing civil rights movement, becoming a rallying cry and one of the movement's leading voices is that of Mamie Till. In the years following Emmett's death, Mamie educates school children about the civil rights movement, volunteers in poor neighborhoods, and becomes a valued spokesperson for the NAACP. Her bravery and fortitude in the face of oppression, the decision to let the world see her son's body, is an inspiration to future generations. In 2003, Mamie dies at the age of 81. Having outlived both her son's killers, she's laid to rest next to her beloved son. But the campaign for justice does not die with her. In the years to come, others will pick up the torch. The story of Emmett Till is not over yet. In 2005, haunted by the tragic story of Emmett Till, American filmmaker Keith Beauchamp produces a documentary about the murder. In doing so, he succeeds where so many professional investigators had failed. His film tries to answer a question the public and press have been asking for 50 years. Were there others involved in the crime? And can they be held accountable? After exhaustive research, he uncovers new evidence and reignites public interest in the crime. Beauchamp alleges 
that as many as 14 people may have been accomplices in the murder of Emmett Till, some of whom are still alive today. One of whom is Henry Lee Loggins, a Milam employee named in the trial. Loggins is named in police records and witness testimonies as having been present. But in an interview with Beauchamp, he strongly denies any involvement. Frustratingly, it's too late to try and question the other employee named in the trial, Levi Collins. He passed away in 1992. Based on the evidence Beauchamp uncovers, the Department of Justice and the FBI agree to reopen the case. As part of their investigation, the question of whether it was really Emmett that was pulled out of the river is finally answered once and for all. His body is exhumed, and DNA testing proves the fact beyond a shadow of a doubt. In February 2007, the renewed interest in the case turns the spotlight back to those who are still alive. In particular, Carolyn Bryant, the woman whose husband admitted to murder, the woman whose testimony swayed a jury, the woman who Mose Wright always suspected was there the night Emmett was kidnapped, the voice in the darkness that identified his great-nephew. You see, Beauchamp's investigation uncovered a startling fact. Even back in 1955, local police also believed she was involved in the crime. Down in the basement of a Mississippi archive, Beauchamp found a warrant for her arrest that, for reasons unknown, was never served. Due to this evidence, a grand jury is convened to look at whether she could be indicted as an accomplice, along with the numerous others implicated by the film. However, with so much time having passed, they declined to pursue Carolyn Bryant, now nearly 80 years old, nor anyone else. The following month, the FBI releases a 464-page report detailing their investigation. Large sections are redacted, and many witnesses interviewed aren't named outright. But it sheds light on all sorts of inaccuracies around the investigation and trial. And one revelation stands out most of all. It seems that back in 1974, 33 years ago, someone made a deathbed confession admitting their part in the killing. Needless to say, it wasn't either of the men who stood trial for it. The FBI reveals that it was Leslie Milam, brother of J.W. Milam, whose barn Emmett was allegedly taken to and who finally confessed. Losing his fight with cancer, he called a preacher to his house ready to clear his conscience before it was too late. The pastor claims Leslie admitted that he had been there that night and helped his brother kill the teenager. He stopped short of explaining exactly what his role had been and doesn't name anybody else. Leslie Milam died before sunrise the next day. For whatever reason, at some time over the preceding decades, this information eventually came into the hands of the FBI, who now include it in their report. A report that is read by journalists, the general public, and of course, Emmett Till's surviving relatives. Wheeler Parker, Emmett's cousin who had been a witness, says the family takes a measure of satisfaction in the deathbed confession. It's further proof of what many have long believed that the investigation and trial were deeply flawed 
the murderers went unpunished and that there were indeed others who were involved, though precisely how many is unclear. But there is at least one known individual Emmett's family still wants to pursue. Carolyn Bryant. In 2017, further controversy is sparked when historian Timothy Tyson interviews Carolyn Bryant, now in her 80s. Tyson claims that in their conversations, Carolyn finally recanted her official testimony regarding how Emmett had behaved in her store that day. She also allegedly admits that she lied on the stand during the trial. Tyson's claims are quickly contested by Carolyn's family, who issue a vehement denial on her behalf. In February 2023, the ongoing dispute over Carolyn Bryant's role in the crime takes another dramatic turn. Relatives of Emmett Till try and compel the U.S. government to investigate her, demanding they action the 1955 arrest warrant that went unserved. We may never know the whole truth, but one thing that is for certain is the impact Emmett Till's legacy has had. From a Hollywood film to the series of Emmett Till acts, the congressional statues tackling race crimes that bear his name. His death, though horrific and cruel, undoubtedly contributed to a wave of change that swept the nation. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Leo Hannon, a 61-year-old New Zealand man serving a life sentence for the murder of a night watchman. In 1962, after 10 years behind bars, Hannon is dying of cancer. He decides to make a confession. Hannon reveals to his lawyer that the night watchman was not his only murder victim. There were others. His chilling words will reawaken multiple unsolved murder cases which have haunted New Zealand since the 1940s. Now, decades after the bloody crimes were committed, will Hannon's confession finally give police the answers they've been looking for? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.